0: So this is uh, week two of our Monty Python examination or whatever. So if anyone uh, is listening to this one first, last week was our first Monty Python episode where, you know, we did it, there's like the four seasons. So we watched one episode from season one and one from season two. And this week we're going to do one from season three and one from season four. And last week we just talked about our personal experiences with Monty Python, where this week I did the proper research and went and looked into Monty Python stuff. Which uh, I mean, I feel like if you really wanted to, you could read about Monty Python until the end of time. There's so much about this show. It's funny because we usually do these like obscure shows, right? So if I can find anything about them that's like a bonus, where with this I had to try to uh, sort of condense this down into like what's actually useful information about Monty Python. So, so let's see here. <laughs> I got a lot of notes here, but I'll try to uh, streamline it a bit. So there were forty five episodes that aired over four series from nineteen sixty nine to nineteen seventy-four, plus two episodes for German TV. Apparently some German TV guy saw it and liked it and actually arranged for them to make some special episodes for German TV. And in one, German? Yeah in, in German? One of them was overdubbed into German. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the other one, if I'm reading right, was performed. I guess by the by the Python guys in German. I guess I don't know. I didn't look those up, cause, <laughs> but they're out there. I guess if you really want to get get weird with your Money Python, uh, as we you know have been going through, this is because I'm saying this is part two is really like part whatever <laughs> of our uh, getting to the the beginnings of Money Python. So the six members met through various university and television things, as we've examined the different shows they were on together. Uh, So basically, though, to uh, boil it all down of what happened with Monty Python is they had worked on these shows together, particularly the Frost Report everybody worked on, but they worked together in various pairs and back in their uh, respective universities. So they were offered two different shows, like one group offered one show the other group offered another show. But since the BBC is a relatively small, self-contained place, everyone was all there together. So the six Python guys themselves kind of met and arranged they, they they decided like we should just do one show together and they're the ones who pitched that idea so the powers that be were like oh all right <laughs> you know instead of two shows we'll just make one super show with everybody and uh the team intended their humor to be impossible to categorize which i'd say they did a pretty good job because <laughs> especially reading through this stuff man like I mean, this happened a lot when I was in New York because a lot of the people I knew there were comedians. Hearing comedians discuss and, like, dissect comedy is the least funny thing you could ever hear in your life. It's just I got so tired of hearing about the nature of a joke and blah, blah, blah. And it's like that when you try to read about Monty Python, people trying to explain the style of the show and why it's funny or why it's unique. And it's just like oh, they've been doing
1: it since Shakespeare's
0: day. Yeah, it takes it certainly doesn't. It takes all the energy out mm-hmm. of it. That's for sure. I mean, I'm not saying you should never examine it, but I'm not interested in reading the examination. So see, so yeah, just reading that it was impossible to categorize. I think that's fair enough. And like that, the term Python-esque kind of came up because it's easier than trying to explain what Monty Python is. It's just it's that <laughs> it's its own thing. Although, we might have to check this show out because the one show that they point to several times, as if there is any direct inspiration for Monty Python, is this guy named Spike Milligan who oh, had a show. Oh, Spike
1: Milligan. <laughs> yeah, I know him. He had a I'm, show
0: called Q. Have you ever seen that?
1: Uh, yep, don't know.
0: So apparently Q was, you know, like we were talking about uh, breaking the fourth wall last week and we watched, uh, you know, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and stuff. Apparently, this show Q was like the first show to do that, to just break the conventions of TV, where like if a sketch was going badly, sometimes Spike Milligan, he would just wander off and just be like, did I write this? This is terrible. Like He wouldn't end it. He would just stop. (laughs) And the Python guys thought that was really funny. So their version of that was kind of like, they found one of the, the big weaknesses to sketch comedy is the punchline. If it has a bad punchline at the end, it can ruin the whole sketch. So they were like, well, let's just not have punchlines. Let's just wander off, like sort of like Spike Milligan did. But their way of doing that is that stream of consciousness. You know, one sketch goes into the next, or one of those weird animations gets you to the next one. So it's not that there's never an end to the sketch, but that's not the important part. And then Mr. Show later in the 90s clearly did that as well. So yeah, it's kind of neat, because it's like, yeah, just uh, how important is it to have a punchline? Maybe just a funny premise and some weird shit happening in total is more uh interesting more entertaining and funnier and uh i think they're right you know because it it does it is like a line in the sand when you see those older especially like the radio duos and stuff from the golden age it's very punchliney you know and monty python sure isn't like (laughs) like we remember the dead parrot and stuff but how did that end who knows who cares (laughs) that's not the funny part you know Uh, as far as the title goes and there's a lot of uh all this information is there's a lot of uh variants depending on which python is telling the story there's not a lot of distinct information about monty python it's like one guy said this one guy said that so any of this information could be wrong or could be half truths or whatever but basically as far as the weird title what i could gather is uh because the six of them were always at the bbc and running around and doing stuff and they were just you know uh a weird energy, you know, to the Monty Python people compared to everyone else at BBC. So one of the executives suggested the that, like, using the title of a circus because those guys were like a circus, just watching them doing all their weird shit. And they changed it to flying. They, they kind of like that, but they're like they changed it to flying circus because that was the nickname of this group of World War One pilots. So right out of the gate, that's like one of these weird subversive Monty Python things, flying circus. If you don't know that it's a World War I reference, it's just circus stuff like the BBC guy asked for, but to them it meant World War One Flying aces. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, which is way more, you know, just darker and weirder. <laughs> the flying circus is not the circus. And then the name Monty Python, they had a bunch of versions of that type of name, but they thought it just sounded like a like a sleazy manager. Monty Python's Flying Circus like they're all under the employ of this this guy, Monty Python, who's nobody but it's just, you know, just a good name just a good, funny, weird name but they had a bunch of alternate titles uh, which are really strange and some of these were used later in the show, like that episode the very first episode, Wither Canada that was one of their names that they wanted that they pitched, Wither Canada Uh, The Nose Show Ow, it's Colin Plint a horse a spoon and a basin owl stretching time and the toad elevating moment that was also in one of the episodes we watched so all just nonsense titles you know that's all they really wanted was a weird title so monty python obviously monty python's flying circus doesn't really mean anything even if you dissect where the pieces came from you know all that's important is that it's a weird title and it had a slow build with audiences in britain but but did okay. Like, it was going somewhere. But apparently there was uh, people in the BBC who disliked it immediately because despite... Right from the get-go, it was supposed to be an adult late-night show with, like, Terry Gilliam's weird nude animations and just the weird shit that happens. But it was described by some BBC bigwig as disgusting and nihilistic. And in particular, they mentioned that funeral parlor sketch we saw last week that, you know, the whole idea was the Queen's not watching anymore. Let's just be offensive. Like the python guys knew that wasn't funny the point was for it to be offensive where they're talking about eating the guy's dead mother but bbc people were like disgusting and nihilistic you know (laughs) it's like okay i mean yes but you know you're missing the point but apparently after season two the show got more censored so these ones we're watching now this is the thing because they had a lot of freedom obviously or they wouldn't have ever been able to make a show so weird but these ones we're watching now were a little more under the uh magnifying Um, glass under
1: the thumb of the of the big wigs
0: so i guess we'll see if we notice that uh so the reason john cleese left after series three he was talking about leaving even after the second season but he stayed for a third but uh, it was because he feared that the sketches were starting to be rehashes of each other which i think is probably a fair thing you can only do so many sketch shows before it starts getting to be kind of samey so he didn't want that to happen and apparently they, when they did writing, they kind of reverted back to their old university. Oh, but basically, Cleese and Chapman, because they met at, uh, what school was it they went to?
1: They, Oxford or Cambridge, which home were they? No,
0: they? They were Cambridge, right, the Cambridge Footlights. So Cleese and Chapman, they wrote together. And Palin and Jones, since they met at Oxford, they would write together. And Eric Idle would usually write by himself. And John Cleese said, you can kind of tell who wrote what. Like, if it was uh, an overly aggressive sketch with a lot of people, like, hurling verbal abuse at each other, it was him and Chapman. If it starts with, like, a a pan across a pastoral scene, that was always Palin and Jones. And if it was obsessed with wordplay, that was Eric Idle. Like, that one we watched with the people who only say the start of sentences, middle of sentences, and ends of sentences. Or, like, he had one about... uh, a guy who pronounces all C's as B's, you know, like anything like that is Eric Idle. <laughs> so that's how you can basically figure out who wrote what in Monty Python. But because uh, Cleese and Chapman were the duo that worked together a lot, um, apparently Graham Chapman was uh, had like alcohol problems all throughout, even when he was in university and up to this point, and it was just getting increasingly hard to work with him because of his alcoholism. Uh, but the nice news is, by the time they did Life of Brian in 1979, he was sober. And he died in 89 from cancer. But his last 10 years, he was sober. So he got it together. But at this period, John Cleese, with the you know, not wanting to outstay his welcome and just tired of dealing with this drunk guy. <laughs> that's why he left. So it's like, okay, I mean, that all kind of makes sense. Uh, oh, yeah, and I guess I should just mention Carol Cleveland because, you know, they often refer to her as the 7th Python and uh, she really was just a model known for Monty Python. She didn't do anything else, but, <laughs> but, but she did do an important role in Monty Python. Uh, also, I guess Terry Gilliam, so we never really followed him too closely, but he started on... Uh,
1: He's man. the American guy, isn't he? Yeah.
0: yeah. And I didn't write it down because I don't remember now, but he started in like a magazine, I believe. He was like an illustrator for some magazine that John Cleese was involved with. And then he moved to England and started doing animations. So when the Python guys decided to combine, they also brought him in. They're like, this guy does these weird animations. And particularly if we're going to do this stream of consciousness thing, if we need a way out of a sketch (laughs) to link it to the next sketch, what could be better than just his weird animations? Because then you you, you don't even realize there wasn't a punchline when you're watching this weird stuff that this guy (laughs) made. So that's where he came from. So then as far as coming over to... Uh, north america the show was considered too british for american tv but it became a fixture on cbc so it started in 69 in england by fall of 1970 it was playing on the cbc and that's where these americans that lived in the northern states that would get canadian tv signals that's when they first started being able to see Money python so that's kind of interesting like they didn't really start airing it properly until 1974 in America, so we were well ahead of the curve in Canada. So it's not coincidence that you and all your college uh, buddies, you know, all were into Monty Python because it, it, Canada is really what broke it into North America, and uh, America took ages. However, once they started airing it in the states on like PBS and stuff, it gained popularity really quickly. So uh, even though it only really started in 1974, by the time Holy Grail came out in 1975, it did great in both continents. And apparently even Elvis, in his final days, confined to Graceland, you know, he died in 77, I'm mm, going to say. Yeah, I think
1: he was 77, yeah.
0: But apparently when he was, yeah, just, just trapped in Graceland, never left, hardly saw anybody, but people often, who, the people who did see him and talk to him said he often talked about his favorite monty python sketches so he was just holed up in there eating his weird uh you know bacon and peanut butter deep fried sandwiches and watching monty python (laughs) so i mean it's just a weird thing to mention but it's like i mean that that is kind of a testament to how immediately cool monty python was that even fucking elvis was like what is this show who will talk to me about this weird show (laughs) that i've been watching and uh Again, like, I don't know, I just picked, uh, what are we watching? We're watching the first episode of season three and the last episode of season four. So we'll just see what happens, what sketches we get, who knows. But uh, I was thinking maybe next week, maybe, we probably won't even do a podcast about this, but maybe next week I'll just dig up some of the really famous Monty Pythons before we leave Monty Python land, just so we can. Yeah, uh,
1: and maybe see if you can find Spike Mulligan.
0: Yeah, Q. I think we'll do a whole podcast about that because, yeah, I am curious. Yeah.
1: I know the name, but I really can't say what I know about him.
0: Right. But. And that is, yeah, since that's kind of the purview of this podcast anyway is to discover old TV, this seems like especially worth examining if the Monty Python guys vouch for him. I mean, hey, how bad can that be? But uh, as far as famous sketches, because we didn't really hit any of the really famous ones last week, and who knows what we'll get this week. But uh, they made a list of the 50 greatest British sketches of all time in 2005, Channel 4 did. And five Monty Python sketches made the list. And I do feel like they pretty much nailed it here as far as top five most famous Monty Python sketches. There's Dead Parrot, the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) No one expects. The Ministry of Silly Walks. Oh, Yes. Nudge Nudge yes. eh? Nudge Nudge Hey, eh? eh? Winking a nudge And the Lumberjack song Oh
1: of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean because I figure You could probably dig up Another 20 famous sketches But as far as the Five big ones That everybody knows Like yeah, yeah that, that they pretty would much... be them So maybe next week Just for us Just not even on the podcast I'll just find those ones mm-hmm. We'll just watch those Because why not Watch them again But yeah so for this week If anyone's watching Along at home Like I said It is season 3 Episode 1 And season 4 Four, episode six, because there was only six episodes, very short season. So, Wicker's World and Party Political Broadcast. So, this is not only with the BBC paying more attention and potentially censoring the show a little, but this season four one is after John Cleese left. So, just see. I assume it's all going to be yeah, great. compared.
1: Yeah, we'll be able to compare like the yeah. beginning and the end.
0: And last week, uh, yeah, it went well. I mean, even though they were more obscure episodes, they're great. They're Ronnie Python. <laughs> you can't go wrong. So... So here we go. So for example, right here, right away, camera panning across a pastoral scene Mm -hmm. like that's so Mm -hmm. that's now we know that's palin and jones we know that (laughs) and if people are yelling at each other later that'll be
1: yeah i mean that that's very interesting information
0: yeah because you can kind of envision it and like Mm -hmm. how eric Idle always did those weird wordplay ones because like yeah okay i know which ones those are too (laughs) it's kind of funny So, yeah, I didn't expect the difference between the first half of Monty Python and the second half to be so distinct, but those definitely felt different.
1: Yeah, they were, uh, especially that last one, like, that was their last show, like, that was really bizarre.
0: Yeah, that, uh, I mean, yeah, again, it's just only six episodes with the non-John Cleese stuff, but, uh, and it said they didn't get into details, I'm sure I could have found the details somewhere, but they did say they intended to do a full 13-episode season and they cut it short. Maybe that's why. Maybe they were like, yeah, man, fucking the wheels have fallen off this thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because that last show was, like, very... Like, a whole lot of them are are kind of loose-ended anyway, but that was really loose-ended. That looked like it was just like, ah, let's just throw anything on here.
0: (laughs) Although, yeah, although I was saying, though, like, how uh, it's still very elaborate. Like, that first bit about the worst family in England or whatever, like, a very complicated set and the timing and different the props of like yeah. ironing things like they put a lot of work into yeah. it but conceptually it's like yeah it just wasn't clicking and it's funny that thing uh john cleese said about the different styles of sketches and how he was worried they were getting repetitious like the eric idol ones in particular that are about wordplay so yeah we saw the people who say the start of sentences then the you know the letters that are different or whatever that
1: whole last show was very wordy
0: and like yeah by the time especially that one of like people that end each other's sentences that kind of i could just imagine john cleese being in the writing room like like again we're doing this again
1: (laughs) and when they just did all that kind of uh crap on the liberal party i presume the liberal party might have been in power at the time in britain i i really don't know but it was just kind of like yeah, well, let's just say a bunch of crap about the Liberal Party, yeah. and, and and they did, and they were even laughing at the end, like, and it wasn't like, a, as if it was a controlled laughter as part of the skit. It was just like, oh, whatever.
0: And I guess that kind of ties into like the Frost Report and stuff. But yeah, like uh, political humor, it's just hard to do because uh, cause it's just a tiresome topic, no matter <laughs> no matter what tack you take on it. But yeah, and even the episode three one we watched with the uh, the saga, like the feeling I got from that was. Now that they're three seasons in, it's like at the start, they wanted to subvert comedy. So they did weird stuff you wouldn't expect. But by the time you get to season three, now you've got to subvert your subversion because people already are used to the weird stuff you did. So you're getting double weird. And like, I found that one really like legitimately hard to follow. It was like complicated. Like, I feel like it's like I was saying with like Mr. Show, I bet. I bet if I watched all of the Monty Pythons and, like, episodes like that with the Norrell Saga, like, I bet the second time and then, like, the third time, you're probably noticing all kinds of connections and stuff. But the first time, that's a lot to take in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not, not so much funny. It's, like, clever more than funny and, and yeah, difficult. So, yeah, the early Monty Pythons do seem like they were better, but, but I guess that makes sense. Like, if you're if you're going to have, like, a fresh new take on comedy... How fresh is it going to be three or four years later?
1: (laughs) But that could be part of its longevity, though, is when you finish watching one, like of those two that we just watched there. It's like, instead of just saying, oh, my God, like, I'll never watch that again. It's like, now I think I might watch that again and see what what were the connections like. What did I miss there? Right. Because it had it seemed to have more depth to it than just being superficial.
0: Yeah. yeah like, like one
1: level. It, it, it there's There was stuff going on there that you just couldn't possibly grasp just with one viewing.
0: And like I was asking you in between, you know, because they were making so many jokes about uh, the BBC and their historical sagas. And like people don't want to see that when they get home from work. And then tying in promotional material for Malden and just all this stuff that it just... Requires way too much knowledge about what you might catch on BBC in the early 70s that I just don't have. (laughs) I just don't know. I'm like having to assume things, but then when you're that deep in your own head, it's hard to laugh because you're too busy trying to figure out the context of what's happening. But that is like, uh, that's kind of what I feared might happen last week of just picking random episodes where I was like, maybe we'll get some duds that just will be weird and will be just not the classics, but then last week went really well. This week was more, yeah, Like I mean, again, it happens with every show. I mean, you could just get that weird episode of Kids in the Hall, that weird episode of whatever that just, it's just a weird one, (laughs) more so than a funny one. But yeah, and definitely, because I remember just doing that, the initial brief research, like last week I was so confused to learn that John Cleese wanted to leave and then did leave but now, as you see, just the, even just one episode from each season, it's like yeah, I'm starting to understand his perspective a lot more. Like, you know, the party can't last forever. You can't change comedy every year. They already they, they did it. They changed comedy. Now get out while the getting's good. And that is kind of how it felt here, particularly by that season four. It is like, and they apparently all got on board with that. And then I think it was good that then they moved on. And like the year after that, they made uh, Holy Grail. Like, that was the next step. Go on, make the movies. Because that was my initial feeling, too, was like, wow, only four seasons and one of them is truncated? I thought there was more Monty Python. But maybe that was all the Monty Python that there needed to be, (laughs) you know? Where I was saying I was uh, concerned in some ways to dig too deep into Monty Python because you don't want to take the sheen off of your memories. But I don't think that happened. It does just confirm that there are some weird episodes. They're not all gold. There's a reason why we remember the big sketches.
1: And obviously, and they develop, though, because when you compare that to what we saw last week, the beginnings, and now we're at the end, those ending shows were not the same as the beginning, which oftentimes what you see with television shows is just the same thing, over and over and over and over and over again, and then it dies, because it's just complete repetition, This was not complete repetition. This just kept getting weirder and weirder and weirder.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Like, yeah, they. I mean, there was like small elements that recur, like the weird uh, wordplay stuff, or just sort of premises that are sort of similar, but there's certainly no formula. Yeah. Like, if anything, the formula just unraveled more and more and more.
1: Oh yeah, I certainly couldn't say. Oh yeah, did that ever get? Oh, man, that was just the same thing again and again. It wasn't. Yeah, that you, was completely different.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't say, like, oh, I saw that coming. Like, no, you didn't. <laughs> you definitely didn't. Maybe it's, too, it's kind of like uh, it's like the different art forms. It's like there's the ones that you get better as you're older and the ones that you're better when you're younger. Like, you know, maybe if you're writing a big epic drama, you're better at that when you're older because you're more considered and you have a better world view. But I always think of, like, music. No band's best album is the 10th album. You know, it's the first and the second one are when they were young and they were go-getters and they really had something going, and then it it devalues. Maybe comedy is like that, too. Like, what is the chances that the 10th season of something is funnier than the first? Yeah. It's probably not.
1: And to keep up that level of... And now for something completely different. To keep up that level of really creating something completely different... I don't know how you can do it for so maybe year four. That was they they said. You know what? This is it. Yeah. Like we've gotten so weird. Like that skipped. I, I I'd seen that one before on Jean Paul Sartre. That just slayed me. Like, yeah. Those old washer women all knowing Jean Paul Sartre. <laughs> God.
0: Yeah, that probably was the best of the ones that we saw, and it was again impressive how they work it into the Norwegian saga, where now the old ladies are in there. But they didn't just show up. like They kind of established that they're on their way to go talk to Jean-Paul Sartre. So they're on a, a raft. So it kind of, in a weird way, makes sense.
1: Yeah, it fits, of yeah. course. Why wouldn't they, uh, Why wouldn't they end up in Iceland if they took the wrong turn?
0: And then, yeah, just that whole thing of just, they just have some philosophical Ooh. argument about Jean-Paul Sartre. So they go through this whole epic journey just to talk to him for a second, like I mean it man such remaining. Did it mean this? Uh we. Oui. She told you. <laughs> but that's one thing too that it's hey, Mrs.
1: Sartre. Of... I just
0: loved her. Yeah.
1: You're, you're a real Sartre with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth.
0: <laughs> He's all right in the morning before noon knew Um. <laughs> that reminded me, too, a lot of Kids in the Hall. Like, Kids in the Hall, definitely. They're, you know, kind of like when they dress up like women is absolutely a Monty Python, you know, thing.
1: Well, and if you've ever read anything about like Jean-Paul Sartre and his Marxism, he seems so dry and droll, and yet here he's married to this slattern with a the, with the cigarette <laughs> hanging out of his mouth, and they had been off to some... French Riviera and met up with uh, the British washerwoman lady and her husband and they just were the best of friends. (laughs) Like, it puts a whole new slant on somebody who you think is such a boring philosopher.
0: (laughs) I was thinking too just as far in general too of like, you know, maybe these last ones aren't as great as the first ones but it's also something that it's kind of weirdly unfair that the world just does to creators in general is you make some amazing thing. You do this amazing, like, bam, everybody loves it. You've changed the landscape, you know? Now do it again. And now do it again. And now do it again. <laughs> it's like, can't you just be a genius who changes the face of comedy one time? How many times do you have to do it? <laughs> so it's just one of those things that even though those episodes clearly weren't as good, to me it doesn't take any of the sheen. I would sheen.
1: say they weren't as good they were just different and they were operating on a whole different level than what the earlier ones were
0: yeah that's where like i would say it it didn't take any of the sheen off of monty python because it's not like they're phoning it in you know if anything they might be trying too hard and it made it confusing (laughs) you know so
1: but again it's the kind of thing that like some of those shows that we've watched before like i've watched them i said oh god they're pretty droll i never wouldn't would never bother watching them again but those last episodes that we saw were so bizarre that, yes, I would watch those again. Because I think there's, there's a, two or three different levels of stuff going on there. As I said earlier, you can't possibly get that with one viewing.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, I mean, this would be an awful thing to do to ruin Monty Python for yourself. But I remember in high school I had, I don't remember which play it was, Midsummer Night's Dream maybe, but some Shakespeare play where the way they had arranged the book was, on the right page was the play and on the left page, you know, across from it was e- explanations of everything. Here's oh, yeah. interpretations, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is that weird catch-22 of Shakespeare. There's just no way to truly understand it anymore because you can't just watch it because you don't understand it. But if you dissect it to that degree, you're also not enjoying it like it was intended. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It could be maybe Monty Python's kind of like that too. If like if you really did want to, like I bet somebody's written a book where they went through every sketch with a fine tooth comb and could explain to you every reference. But that's not. But then
1: you blow it. Yeah. Really, you need to prob yeah like look at it the way Shakespeare Shakespeare's people watched his plays. You had the plebs down in the front who were you know the uneducated, the guys off the street who were watching the body humor in it. Then you had the middle, the middle guys, sort of, you know, semi-literate, who were picking up a different level of it, and then you had the highbrows who were picking up the real, oh, which, yeah, maybe
0: stuff. Monty Python kind of was like that too, where uh, I was kind of had half an eye on this idea that they were more censored, and it's like, oh, maybe I guess this maybe is a little less uh, intense than the early ones, but then there's that sketch in the fourth season. Where Terry Jones just got fucking stabbed and is just spurting blood everywhere for like four straight minutes. He's just <laughs> bleeding everywhere. So it's like, that's again, that's like, if you're not getting the highbrow jokes, you're gonna laugh at the you're absurd, laugh absurd at amounts at of blood.
1: At the absurd, uh, the absurdity. But see, on, on a deeper level, they were taking a crack at the at the at the health system. Right. In Britain, more important to fill out that paperwork than just stop the guy bleeding all over your carpet.
0: And I love, too, that the paperwork wasn't even relevant. relevant. It's like, yeah, even I knew that one. You didn't know the answer to that? It's, you know,
1: something from the merchant of Venice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I mean when I'm saying they're on different levels. Yeah. See, that was a direct attack at the, at the government. And of course, that whole show was about the Liberal Party, which I, as I said, I presume was in power at the time. But uh, if you didn't pick up on that or you knew nothing about the health system, the national health in Britain, yeah, you'd be laughing at Terry Jones there bleeding all over the place and the doctor just being so... In another world, and his nurse is outside stabbing people and shooting people
0: <laughs> well there is too I mean as far as the uh, and as far as the elaborate production goes, there's like the one I especially like there's a lot of stuff that was like complicated and like for the saga, they literally went out and filmed and all this stuff, but one of those like most terrible families in Britain where their cat was halfway out the wall is just someone with a cat puppet and it just they smack it as they walk by. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like to me, that was a, I the I like the I like that that mix of like yeah the highbrow stuff, but then just the lowbrow. just and, and weird
1: yet. stuff like the opening of the saga, then the the Icelandic saga, and what, what do you see Terry Jones sitting nude at his piano? <laughs> <laughs> and how many times have we seen that throughout the whole series? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, so I was thinking next week uh, we won't do a podcast about it, but I'll just dig up some of the more famous Monty Python's, and we'll just have a nice little Monty Python just a. Uh, to to finish this all off bring it in for a a landing because now that i've watched these i do not only do i want to see some of the famous sketches again but i think it'll be interesting to see like you know the spam sketch what were the other sketches like what is what else happened in that episode around that stuff because as non sequitur and as stream of consciousness as it is it always does tend to meld together so so yeah, next week we'll just take a, we'll take an off week and just watch some fucking Monty Python.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm game for that.